At some time in its history, a horror had been committed in that house. No one knew when or what. But even to the untrained observer, the oppressive atmosphere of the house, particularly the top story, was unmistakable. There was a memory and a promise of blood in the air of number 65, a scent that lingered in its sinuses and turned the strongest stomach. The building and its environs were shunned by vermin, by birds, even by flies. No woodlove crawled in its kitchen. No starling had nested in its attic. Whatever violence had been done there, it had opened the house up, as surely as a knife slits a fish's belly. And through that cut, that wound in the world, the dead peered out and had their say. That was the rumor, anyway. What up all you psychic skirts and bullshit and blokes and welcome to another sexually shaft-driven episode of The World Is My Burrito, aka Twimby, a podcast where I gaze forlorn down the intangible highways of immaterial matters to bring you the tales of its cadaverous carpoolers. Guiding you today as always is me, your host with a barker bigger than his bite, if you know what I'm saying, Corey T, coming at you from Tampa, Florida. Future me is really going to hate how solid that intro was. These ain't getting easier, let me tell you. Already had one of those snafus. This is being recorded on Sunday, November 27th, 2022. Moving on. Welcome to episode 14, where we're going to talk a little more about a little something something called Clive Barker's The Book of Blood. That is, the two films from 2009 and 2020, and their two originating short stories, The Book of Blood and On Jerusalem Street. This is going to be not safe for work. Do with that information what you will. First of all, a little bit of kitchen keeping. Y'all, Hurricane Ian and Tropical Storm Nicole both brought solid chunks of cold weather, and for the first time in years, that really got me feeling the spooky season, not just in my brain, but on my flesh. It's great. And with great winds come great podcastability, or whatever Sam Raimi said. In October, the Shortbox podcast had me on their annual horror episode number 371, where we talk about our specific horror picks of the year. Neatcast with Zach and Mike also invited me on. That is a wildly different format where three dudes talk about dog beer, snake news, and kids from Hot Topic. You can find episode number 102 wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, if for some reason you decided, you know what, I'm just going to look up Twimby on YouTube, then you might notice that you can see my face. This is one of the many additional reasons why this podcast took forever to release, because this is something I've been wanting to do for a while, is have like a visual presence. Uh, anyways, here we are. Uh, here we are. So you're going to see some cuts as I'm getting used to this. Um, and you're going to see me staring at, you know, down at my screen a lot while I'm still getting used to this. Whatever. It's just normal stuff. Get over yourself. In the Twimbyverse, I have been hard at work with this episode and the next episode. Clearly, neither was finished before October and for good personal reason. Also on the docket is another podcaster's disassembled episode and neatcast episode, the topics of which I dare not spoil just yet. On to the meteor bits of the episode. In prep for some kind of horror episode, I have consumed a ton of horror and dark fantasy content since the end of August. And no matter how much any of it deserves an episode, like Dorohedoro, Clive Barker's Books of Blood were an almost daily recommendation between September and October. This was originally supposed to be an episode on the entire collection, which changed after realizing there were not one, but two movies based on just the first and final stories. 
Also, I suspected it would be hella quick to make an episode about so few topics. The irony is not lost on me. Now, it is impossible to separate our short stories from their contained collections. They are intertwined from top to bottom, beginning to end. I've done my best to focus on the topics at hand and save all the extra juice for future content. So if you notice a lot more generic terminology than usual and a lot less specificity in history, it's not because I don't know, it's because I'd like to finish this this year. Before we dive more than skin deep, let me hit you with some personal history. Clive Barker's Books of Blood is new-ish to me, having only read through them last year, 2021. I'm pretty sure Hellbound Heart, binging the entire Hellraiser franchise, the Hellraiser episode, and a few hand-picked short stories came first before realizing I needed these collections in my life. The 2020 Hulu Channel movie was a first watch on October 1st of this year, which motivated me to do an episode about the entire series. Of course, the very first search result turned up the previously unheard of 2009 film, which took up the following Monday night. Then I thought, hey, if filmmakers felt these tiny pieces of literary history merited such attention, why not follow suit? Of course, that meant rereading the accompanying short stories, and then some in-between films to relive the dark fantasy that first opened my eyes to something greater than just the rotting, metal-as-fuck descriptions of the Order of the Gash. As for world history, I'ma do it, but still keep it to a minimum. Author Douglas E. Winter felt that horror had reached its zenith in the early 80s, with horror being surmounted by little more than sensationalism. The best example I've experienced from this period was V.C. Andrews' Flowers in the Attic from 1979, which relies almost exclusively on emotional jump scares. Barker's books were released only a few years before The Hellbound Heart and Hellraiser, so I will once again recommend that you check out episode 10 for a little more period history. As far as more history on Barker, he worked in theater as an actor and, during the time of this topic, a playwright. This was a life-consuming job, and my mans needed to express a little bit of mental freedom. Enter the Books of Blood. The casualness of this effort allowed him to remain free from censorship to write whatever, however. These were never written to be published, just to express himself and to entertain friends. Hot take, they're all great. The Book of Blood's 11 pages are not life-changing, but are a great intro into Barker. It reads very casually, which is what did and does enamor me. Where Hellbound Heart comes in swanging with a jug of seven days urine and a plate of dove heads... This is getting kind of tacked on later, so wording, but the book, the short stories, 10 out of 10, recommend, check them out. Uh, the movies, they're not going to be life-changing. If you really enjoyed the short stories, go check the movie out. It will take you less time for once to actually read the book than it will to watch the movie. The Book of Blood reads more like a documentary about a group of three people traveling unknowingly on an inescapable track alongside ghouls on an exodus, which isn't far from the content. It's relaxing and makes me feel guilty for reading it as if it were supposed to be relaxing. If you're one of those horror fans who starts watching low-investment horror movies on the first day of fall, this is a good read for you. The next story, on Jerusalem Street, is truly short. Like, real short. Like, three to four pages. It just rounds out where we started with the Book of Blood, following up on a story we didn't think would actually go anywhere further. It literally bookends the entire collected works in yet another very odd, relaxing, albeit graphic, tale. 
I like both films equally, but for very different reasons. 2009 both adheres more to the story, but feels the need to add more scenes and generic horror tropes just to keep you spooked and fill time. 2020 is an anthology of mostly new stories, which is much more contextually accurate, but the actual Book of Blood story leaves much to be desired. Not gonna lie, I think the special effects in the 2009 film are much better than the 2020. If you don't want to suddenly awaken on the floor, covered in heterogeneous writing, wearing nothing but your birthday suit, maybe store this burrito in a cabin in the woods. But if you want to fake it till you make it, then let's chow right on down into this burrito. The Book of Blood. Clive Barker's Books of Blood, Volumes 1 through 3, were penned between 1981 and 82. The contract with Sphere Books began in 82, and all three volumes were released simultaneously in the UK on January 1st, 1984. Neither Barker nor his assistants had any idea how to get published, so this contract was gained through a wild series of avenues, which incidentally resulted in certain people he didn't even know vouching for him. I'm still keeping the deets down, but know that this was a weird time for an unknown author to be writing and producing an anthology of short stories. Horror stories at that. This was a popular era for horror, but only if your last name was something like King, Straub, or Andrews. Sphere Books was understandably hesitant to publish, but they did under the stipulation that the first three volumes must be published simultaneously. So when they released, they were all sitting side by side one another on a shelf. The American volumes saw a release in April of 1985. I appreciate the Book of Blood for its handling of language and, more importantly, characters. It's not complex. Characters are quick to accept their fate and the fates of others, even if said fate disagrees with their desires. A lot of backstory and character motivations are effortlessly provided in a short amount of time, sometimes in one or two sentences, and any mystery is quickly debunked. And that is what surprises me when reading. The mystery isn't in the mystery, but in how far this stretches. The shock isn't in the shock, but in the quick acceptance. Within three pages of this story, we know the entire game. Dr. Florescu has felt defeat both professionally and sexually for some time, but the boy shows promise in both areas that finally gets her excited. She, like the reader, is surprised to discover her own psychic powers, and it's a little ambiguous whether she had latent powers all along or was gifted the ability with her spiritual involvement as the catalyst. But she barely reacts to this, because she immediately understands the supernatural flow that comes with this responsibility. There is this quick kickback from the flesh in the form of her desire for the boy's body, but that immediately fades away into an understanding. She's the one who's privy to the stories of the dead, and McNeil, for his deeds, must become their fleshy tablet. McNeil is introduced as a cheat who thinks he's won the game, and because this is his introduction, there is no Sherlockian reveal. While he's only ever mentioned as having great value both for the studies and in Dr. Florescu's personal life, he's always described kind of like a loser. Uh, from Dr. Florescu's perspective, he's described as such, quote, his face came easily, so very easily, splashing into her consciousness with his smile and his unremarkable physique, still unmanly. Like a girl, really. The roundness of him, the sweet clarity of his skin, the innocence. Unquote. 
Despite his lies and their entirely opportunistic relationship, she still has some care for him. She's not inhuman, and her actions to save him, after the ghosts have their way, from his destiny are almost motherly, which is still kind of a slap in the face. A small character I haven't mentioned yet is Reg Fuller, the tech guy. He doesn't have a grand role by any means, but does have a nice death. Amidst all the weirdness happening in the house, namely Dr. Florescu staring straight up into the ceiling, seemingly speaking to herself, while McNeil screams upstairs, Reg opens a door that now leads to the highways of the dead, killing him instantly. It's tropey, but it's a fun, small display of the weight of things by means of an unimportant character. Dr. Florescu is a psychic who can handle this. McNeil may as well be dead from the shock and is only saved by Dr. Florescu's efforts. Then old Reg just dies from not being able to comprehend what's before him. Anyways, the most important character of this story is Simon McNeil because his body becomes the six volumes of the Books of Blood. The books you're reading are copied from his flesh. Do you get it? It's pretty smart. On Jerusalem Street... A postscript. The bookend of the story, pun intended, ends with On Jerusalem Street, published in 1985. It is the final story of the final volume of Books of Blood, not only ending the series, but also ending the introductory story. And again, in all of like three or four pages. And you gotta love the very first sentence. Wybird looked at the book, and the book looked back. Wybird, being an assassin sent to gather the book, that is the literal flesh of Simon McNeil, for a job. So maybe we shouldn't limit him to assassins so much as a handyman with a very unique set of skills. The single interaction in this story is once again very odd. The book only speaks of himself in third person. Wybird is openly preparing to skin the book, which doesn't seem concerned at all. It's as if the end result was always known and could only ever be this way. The most intriguing line in here is in reference to McNeil. Four years or more since the ghosts came for him. As we learned earlier, Barker's works were first penned in 1981. So between pen hitting paper and production, it has been four years since McNeil also met his fate. Though only one year since the public knew of him. It ain't much, but it's worth it. I love this tiny little bitty detail. On to the first film. Titled Book of Blood premiered on March 7, 2009 at the Hamburg Fantasy Film Fest Nights, with a wide release that following September 28th. It has a runtime of 1 hour and 40 minutes, starring Clive Russell as The Stranger, Jonas Armstrong as Simon McNeil, Sophie Ward as Dr. Mary Florescu, Paul Blair as Reg Fuller, and Doug Bradley, Pinhead himself, as Tollington. It was produced by John Harrison, who worked on the Dune and Children of Dune miniseries, Tales from the Crypt, and plenty more horror-related content. The executive producer was Anthony de Blasi, who also executive produced Midnight Meat Train, another Clive Barker work if you're unfamiliar with it. There isn't much recorded backstory here. John Harrison and Barker began working together on an adaptation of the Aberat stories that never seemed to make it to any screen, but they were previously familiar with each other and excited to work on this new adaptation. It began filming in Scotland in late 2007, finished in 2008, and that's kind of all there is. This time around, On Jerusalem Street is the sandwich, with The Book of Blood being a flashback occupying around two-thirds of the middle of the film. I'm absolutely using the wiki synopsis for extra entertainment value. 
A hooded, disfigured young man is eating at a diner, being watched by a stranger. The stranger is Wybird, who has been stalking the young man, Simon. Wybird convinces Simon to join him in his truck, where Simon passes out and awakens strapped to a table. Wybert offers him a choice, a slow death or a quick and clean death by telling the story of the Book of Blood, a series of scars and inscriptions carved on Simon from head to toe. Opting for a clean death, Simon reveals his story. A young girl is violently raped and beaten in her bed while her parents stand outside screaming her name. An unseen force rips her face off, killing her. Several months later, paranormal professor Mary Florescu and her partner Reg Fuller investigate the house to unlock its mysteriously murderous past. Mary encounters Simon McNeil, a seemingly clairvoyant young man to whom she develops an attraction. Simon reluctantly signs on to assist, and the three of them move in. Reg spots a terrifying ghost and dies from a fall. Mary sees Simon is attacked twice by ghosts. The second time, the ghosts carve into Simon's flesh with nails and glass shards. And Mary understands. She is the key to opening the way for the ghosts. Her powers were what awakened them. She swears to the ghosts that she will tell all of their stories. The ghosts heed her words and depart, allowing Simon to survive the ordeal. Simon reveals to Wybird that he was from then on cursed to be the book on which the dead write while Mary wrote books and made millions off the stories portrayed on him. As she aged, he remained the same youthful appearance, only more scarred with new stories for her to write. He admitted he couldn't take it anymore, so he fled, hence the reason Wybird was hired to remove his skin. Wybird, unmoved, lives up to his end of the bargain and kills Simon quickly. After placing his skin neatly into a suitcase, he waits for his payment. Blood suddenly starts pouring from the case, slowly filling the building that Wybert is trapped in, and he drowns. Mary arrives and is unfazed by Wybert's body. She opens the suitcase, pulls out Simon's intact skin, and smiles as she begins to read the stories still being written upon his flesh. Is that a good time? I think so. It's uh, kind of mostly accurate, but some of the uh, quickness with which things happen is not quite there. Um, I really love the bit about uh, Reg seeing a ghost and dying. That is seriously like probably the last 15 minutes of the movie. Um, it's not like it's not wrong, but it ain't right. Anyways, this time around, we get to experience a little more at what happened inside Tollington Place. In the beginning, a girl gets her face ripped off, like forcefully ripped off on screen. It's great visual effects, no CGI, like all actual makeup and stuff. The film would be much closer to the short story if they had removed a ton of it. This film does feature a lot of backstory into Simon and a lot of like mystery and other things going on. You never really get to see Simon and Mary's relationship develop. It's almost like it's kind of always there. Um, but yeah, they do add a ton of drama and, I guess, eeriness, which I feel like sort of goes against what Clive Barker set up kind of in the original one. There's a lot of bright stuff in the original story, a lot of dark stuff in this movie. I'm not really going to say anything else more about the 2009 movie because it does adhere so much to the book with the exception of like added tropes. Like I really can't express enough that that's all that there is fleshing this out beyond being like a 30-minute story or like 45 minute story. Um, it is almost beat for beat the same thing. The motivations are mostly the same. Um, yeah. So we're just going to move on to the next one. So on to the 2020 anthology film. 
titled Books of Blood, running one hour, 36 minutes. First aired October 6th, 2020 at Screamfest at the Calamigos Ranch in Malibu, California, then aired to the public on Hulu the following day. It stars Britt Robertson as Jenna, Anna Friel as Mary Floreski, Rafi Gavron as Simon McNeil, Yul Vasquez as Bennett, which is the Wybird stand-in, Frida Foshen as Ellie. Okay, there are a lot more, but these are the main players. It was produced by Brandon Braga, who once pitched a script for Freddy vs. Jason and helped in the productions of popular shows such as Cosmos, A Space-Time Odyssey, Star Trek Generations, The Orville, 24, and Salem. Braga also wrote some of this alongside Adam Simon, who worked on films like Brain Dead and Carnosaur, and also produced and wrote for Salem. Braga met Clive Barker in 1987 after standing in line for two hours at a bookstore just to get his autograph. Nothing became of that moment, but years down the line, they were on the phone talking about a series. Around 2017, they began meeting every Tuesday around 3 o'clock for 18 months, mostly getting to know each other by recommending films back and forth, many of which were anthology films. They both realized this possible TV series would be better off as an anthology movie with the intent of connecting the stories. Many ideas were tossed around, but Pulp Fiction is kind of what they were hoping to achieve. Quote, individual stories that are angled just so, unquote. The filming for this started in Nova Scotia in 2019. Barker stated the bodies in the walls and floorboards were based on a serial killer, quote, over 20 years ago, unquote, but I couldn't find anything in the 90s. However, I did find 1940s to 50s English serial killer John Reginald Halliday Christie. Old Reg Christie hid his victims' bodies in a wallpapered kitchen alcove, under the floorboards and under the back porch, very similar to this movie. Seriously, though, go check out this guy's uh, wiki page, just the first two paragraphs. It is a very fast roller coaster. Then maybe read the rest. A small point worth mentioning, this film begins in a bookstore. Barker's inspiration for publishing his writings came to him while in a bookstore. Moving along, Jenna and Ellie's tale is the most Barker of the bunch, in my opinion. More so than Barker's actual tale in this film. Jenna is struggling with life. She can hear everything with great clarity, like a fly buzzing around or a bug crawling in the wall is around the volume of normal speech to us. She suffers some other mental problems that she's normally medicated for, but of course gets off the meds. She has a very fatalist view of existence and genuinely wants to die, but lacks the courage to do so. Balancing her out is Ellie, a retired nurse, and her husband, who is fantastic at working with his hands, building tons of furniture and additions to the house, that second as a bed and breakfast. Both are very composed and make every decision with great consideration. Then we learn Ellie's story. For years, she has been sedating people, family, and visitors, sewing their eyes and ears shut, then storing them within the walls and floors inside and outside the house where she maintains them. So these people are living. They're, they're like I said, they're sedating. Uh, yeah, no, they're definitely still alive. Um, this is where the husband's skill comes in. He's been expanding the house, but not for those staying in beds. Uh-huh. They obviously seem kind of batshit crazy, particularly once they attempt to force Jenna into the same fate. 
But by the end of the story, Jenna returns willingly, knowing that's the only place she can rest. She won't die. She won't hear anything. She won't have the mental capacity to be bothered by life. She can rest. Ellie knew what Jenna needed all along, though Jenna wasn't ready, and accepts her so calmly and motherly. And we now get the impression that the others buried there had similar motivations, albeit some with less fighting. I love that these actions, so evidently disturbing and unhinged to any human, were the exact resolutions needed by some. The couple do nothing to lure people in. They're just a B&B advertised on a website. Yet those who need it kind of seem to be drawn to it. Reading synopses of the film state that Jenna led her boyfriend to commit suicide, which is why she's being chased around by his father. But I think it was evident enough in the film that they both wanted it. Her boyfriend succeeds in committing suicide, though she was nothing more than a coward who couldn't follow through. Which is the other thing I love. She's no hero in this tale. She's not even a victim. She couldn't even adhere to her own life view and took the easy way out. She's completely a coward. There is some manipulation between Ellie and Jenna, though I think it's in comparison to the manipulation between Jenna and her ex. She convinced the ex to do what he wanted, and Ellie tried to convince Jenna to do the same. Bennett's tale is the bookend and the most fun because it's a little zany. He's a hired gun sent to collect money from a bookseller, then ends up on a journey of self-liberation. Bennett and his henchmen literally drive through the stories on the way to their destination, Tollington Place. Where the bookseller owes money, Bennett owes his livelihood. Both wanted freedom, but the bookseller's liberation comes in the form of a slit throat within the first few minutes. We get the usual tropes of the car dying in the spooky town for no apparent reason, then his partner, after hearing the voice of his dead mother and in an act of repentance, kills himself. After which the car starts attacking Bennett until he reaches the dilapidated Tollington place, where he meets Mary, Simon, and Mary's creepy son, Miles. Miles' tale is the weakest in here. He is Dr. Florescu's son, who died at a very young age. She's single only because the father was a piece of shit who didn't want to raise the son. Instead of visiting a haunted house, this is her house. Simon comes along claiming to be able to speak with the dead and somehow knows private details about Dr. Florescu's son. Okay, so just to clarify, in the book, it is Dr. Mary Florescu, but then in this movie, it is Mary Floreski. So I am trying to separate those. Anyways, obviously, these details are used as leverage to get in her bed and her studies. The motivation this time is like exclusively for them to make money, which seems kind of weak, but like whatever, it's modernity. Um, yeah, that is the motivating factor for Simon to do this, is to hopefully make a little bit of money. Not a lot of money, which is the other weird motivating factor. Unmotivating factor, if you will. We eventually learn that Simon was in AA with the doctor's ex, which is how he learned so much about her and how he was able to prepare his deceptions. So that wraps up enough of that movie. I'm just going to move on to my dislikes. 
I don't actually like Miles or his involvement in the 2020 movie. The new take and motivation isn't a problem, but this doesn't seem to add in any way, and I never feel that as a motivator, despite the scenes created to back it up. It feels more rushed with all the angles that come from it. Maybe if the 2009 film were in this anthology, and the anthology were a full film, I'd like both more. One has too much horror trope filler and misses the beauty, while the other has too little time to cover a lot of ground. Tacking on to 2009, I don't like that Simon is always a person and never the book. The third person speech from On Jerusalem Street hits much better. We're not supposed to really relate to him as the book. He is supposed to be gone, which is something the 2020 film does better is he's kind of like, I don't know, seems like he's mentally dead in the movie. He doesn't really say anything after becoming the book. As far as what others disliked, the tomato meter has the 2020 film at 21% with the audience score at 31%. IMDb has it at 5.6 out of 10. People really did not like that movie. Meanwhile, the 2009 movie has an 80% on the tomato meter with an audience score of 30. IMDb has this one listed at 5.2. I'm in agreement with both IMDb ratings. Neither are terrible, but both needed a little something extra. As far as likes, I've gushed over the short story enough, but here's one final great scene. This is from Dr. Florescu's perspective. Ahead, she could see through the door of the room where her little liar was sprawled, surrounded by his attackers. His briefs were around his ankles. The scene looked like a kind of rape. He screamed no longer, but his eyes were wild with terror and pain. At least he was still alive. The natural resilience of this young mind half accepted the spectacle that had opened in front of him. Okay, so right after that, the scene fades away to the street outside, quoting, Echoing with the clamor of children. Come on. The horrifying scene juxtaposed against children playing in the street. Like, come on. This, I don't know, I, this short story is phenomenal. Uh, moving on, all of the special and visual effects in the 2009 film are surprisingly great. Again, I watched the 2020 movie first, so dropping back 11 years and watching Jenny get her actual face ripped off absolutely floored me. Not all of the visual effects are good, but they honestly mostly hit better than 2020. A little bit of trivia, there's not really a ton. Uh, apparently, some 30 books of blood narrative outlines were made for TV, so we'll see if anything ever happens with those. I guess this is more of anti-trivia, but I couldn't find any reasoning why they changed the house address of Tollington Place from one story to the next. Like, literally, in the books, it's one thing. In 2009, it's another. In 2020, it's another. Like, were those actual house addresses, and they were having to, like, change it so that it wasn't someone's house address? Uh, I don't know. It's weird. I didn't find anything on it. It's never explained, you know, in any of the films. Um, but whatever. Moving on to some accolades, in autumn of 1985, Barker was presented with the British Fantasy Award and World Fantasy Award, each honoring Clive Barker's Books of Blood as the best collection of 1984. And as far as any of the movies go, what better accolade for the 2020 film to receive than praise from Barker himself, who said, The whole idea, in a sense, is to shock people, and at the same time, and Brandon does this beautifully, seduce people. Part of it's seduction, and part of it's a slap. And that's a good combination. He achieves that beautifully. And again, I agree with the uh, Ginny and Ellie story. Like, ah, it's so good. Okay, so, like, 
it was sort of a light recommend, but that story is really good. If you really want to check out the 2020 anthology, some of my reference materials for this were clivebarker.info. It is always a great start for anything Barker related. Dailydead.com had some great interviews, morbidly beautiful. Um, I also checked out some stuff from a few Clive Barker books, like the David E. Winters one. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of solid stuff out there. My inspirations, which I'm not going to do this all the time, maybe. I don't know. But anyways, I listened to a ton of My Analog Journal on YouTube. Go check it out. Just so many genres. Very eclectic. It is a phenomenal channel that I accidentally found. Toshiki Soejima, I've listened to everything he has multiple times over because of writing all this stuff. And Blue Note Japan. Anyways, that's enough of that. Now it's time for Nacho Business, where I talk about my business because it's Nacho Business. I've recently read The Dark Knight Returns and Batman Year One by Frank Miller. Both great reads. TDKR has some solid concepts, but I think Year One is the overall superior execution. I also had the chance to read one of Satoshi Kon's 1990 manga, Tropic of the Sea. It's a fun read, but could certainly use a modern approach to the translation and especially text layout. This is an official Kodansha production, but it looks like a fan job. There's a ton more on my list, and there is a ton more on my list, so we'll leave it at that. Some of these will hopefully become their own episodes. For this last bit, we'll quickly cover some announcements and plugs. My next episode will be on Junji Ito's Gyo. What I hope is the biggest part of this episode is already recorded with the remaining informative bits already started. Uh, I did an interview on this one with Matt Hosh, who owns and runs Starfruit Books. I mentioned him in my last episode, so it's cool that I was already able to have this happen. Uh, I'm really hoping to keep the one shorter just to get it out. You know, best laid plans, whatever. Not sure what's next after that. I still have some very big ideas that have been started, but I don't really feel like I'm ready to tackle them just yet. Uh, you know, I got to get a little bit more structure up in here. You know what I mean? Especially adding video. I'm just making this harder on myself. As always, you can find me over on Podcasters Assemble, which has been understandably slow moving this year, but still moving nonetheless. We're doing an episode in December that I'm hyped for and researching for, which is an additional reason why this took so long to do. Uh, too much non-Twimby stuff going on that directly affects Twimby. But hey, I'm still enjoying this. If you like Smut, this is probably the best episode to recommend Damsels Never Finish anywhere you listen to podcasts and on YouTube. Go check them out. Uh, I've listened to, I've been doing it like reverse chronological order um, because they're fairly new, like eight or nine episodes deep. Um, definitely still getting in that uh, the flow of things. So the reverse order has been fun. As always, you can find me on social media, but I am almost exclusively active on Twitter and via email. Uh, I don't have a prompt. I don't have questions. I don't care if you read the materials or not. Uh, this is like combined 15 pages in two movies not being life-changing. Shit or get off the pot, yo. As always, I don't have an outro. And they may change in a few episodes. We'll see.